There will be no real non-controlled currency in the world. Exciting time to be involved in Bitcoin Cash at the moment. During that whole war, Viking versus big blocks, like were we the bad guys? Were we the ones that went listening? Fundamentally, we believe in markets, transparency, and tokenization. Come on, you gotta come stronger than that, you know, like. Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin Cash podcast, following Bitcoin Cash on its rise to global reserve currency. This is episode number 79, Cash Tokens creation, creation, featuring Jason Dreisner, not Dreisner, Dreisner, Monday the 8th of May, 2023. I'm your host, Jeremy. Jet is in the producer's chair. And today, note, we will not be talking about all the ordinals and the BRC20 and everything. Huge mess, loads going on in crypto. We will get to that in a future episode, though. I, I I'm sure we'll bring it back around, but we have a load of stuff to cover today and it is going to be probably one of the more technical and dense episodes, although we'll try and make it as approachable as possible. So just keep in mind, if you're feeling confused or overwhelmed, as somebody once told me, that's the feeling of learning. So let's get into it. Our guest today, Jason Dreisner, is possibly, at least in my humble opinion, you know, one of the best blockchain developers on the planet and a huge contributor, obviously, to Bitcoin Cash tech. We're going to go through all of that. Jason, welcome to the show. How do you get into Bitcoin? Thank you. How do you get into Bitcoin? Stumbled on it online. I uh, I joined BitPay, the, the first cryptocurrency payment processor, first Bitcoin payment processor back in 2013. And I was there for six years and have since then been working on you know contract and, and open source work pretty consistently and, and a lot of work in the Bitcoin cash space. So what is it about uh, Bitcoin Cash obviously being in the scene that long? You would have been there to see through all the different permutations and variations of Bitcoin, all the different fork wars, all the civil wars, all the splits, all the drama, everything. Why Bitcoin Cash? Uh, yeah, I, I came to Bitcoin originally for the for the freedom. Definitely, those of us who have stuck around in, in Bitcoin Cash for this long, you kind of have to be in it for for more than the money um, <laughs> already. Just uh, market action in the past six years. So yeah, and I'm I'm still focused on Bitcoin Cash because I think it's the 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 best sound money option we have right now. Yeah, I don't know that I have a specific uh, slide about it, but you've done quite a lot of work on scalability and all that, right? So maybe just in brief, obviously, I'm always on this show saying, okay, global reserve currency, blah, blah, blah. But the idea is that we're going to get to literally billions of users. And to this day, there's still many people that are asking, is that possible? How could it be done? You know, And partly the proof will be in the pudding once we actually do it, of course, but setting aside actually getting that amount of people interested and involved in an economy and all the tooling and so on and so forth. At a technical level, we do actually need to be able to process that much data. So I was wondering if just briefly you could you could speak to that. What's your thoughts? How are we progressing towards billions of daily users? Yeah, I haven't uh, myself done much of the, you know, the novel scaling work. I I'm, I wouldn't consider myself to be an, an expert there. Um, this The consideration I've put into it is, you know, at least five years ago or more. So I suppose I did have some some stuff in the past, but yeah, by and large, the, the tech needed to scale Bitcoin Cash you know, existed five, 10 years ago, really. And, and now uh, we can scale Bitcoin Cash to 
to millions of many millions of users on very commodity hardware on 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 much cheaper hardware than people are playing video games on right now <laughs> so uh yeah there's there's certainly um some work to be done before every person on earth can make you know 10 transactions a day but but for the foreseeable future we already have the tech we need to be much larger than for most most you know payment card networks for example yeah well that's something that i saw recently i was looking at the uh what do you call it the uh project hamilton and all that stuff and they have supposedly in their cbdc you know orwellian nightmare that's coming in they have up to apparently uh tested for millions of transactions per second right which is just so ridiculous it's so far beyond what is, <laughs> would even be necessary of course being centralized has a lot of scaling advantages in that way but do you have a sense of okay we're going to get to uh, you know 10 transactions per person per day i think the average person on earth probably makes five five transactions per day maybe maybe a little bit more but that will be higher once you can interact um you know seamlessly on a on a peer to peer basis plus obviously we'll have you know machines just like on ethereum you know where it's just spammed full of mev bots and and stuff like that is that kind of where we're headed in your mind a little bit i think uh, bitcoin cash architecturally has a different set of incentives so we're likely to see the ecosystem evolve a little bit differently than it's been on 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 ethereum in that example so you know the 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 minor uh what's it, they call it maximal extractable value now mev um the maximal extractable value situation can exist on uh, uh, with certain types of contracts but i think by and large a lot of the protocols that are likely to get most popular on bitcoin cash probably won't have significant uh mev um other than transaction fees you know every every transaction will have a little fee and that's the the minor extractable value but in general the architecture of bitcoin cash doesn't really lend itself to the kind of reordering games because uh, fundamentally ethereum miners choose the order of transactions and on bitcoin cash users choose the order of their transactions they have to build on specific utxos and that's why it's that's why the processing is so is so uh, absurdly parallel is actually the term for it. The processing on Bitcoin Cash only requires the validation of the UTXO that the user selected rather than putting everybody's transactions kind of in the same bucket and, and choosing the order you want to order them. And as the miner trying to figure out really quickly which one will make you the most money on bitcoin cash the that possibility does exist with certain transactions that actually exist on bitcoin too but the uh with certain types of contracts and anyone can spend a contract for example but the architecture really doesn't lend itself to that kind of ecosystem developing to the same extent right so for to just uh, back up a step here for people who don't uh, aren't deep on this rabbit hole just I'm going to explain that. So for MEV, which was originally minor extractable value, and now the Ethereum ecosystem have rebranded to maximal extractable value after their switch to proof of stake because they don't, they've got uh, validators instead of uh, miners anymore. The idea is that because uh, each transaction plays into every other transaction because of uh, the global state stored on the network. What that means is if you are a miner, you can do something like a sandwich attack, which is if somebody is trying to buy a certain type of token and that's coming into your block, well, you can put a transaction in beforehand where you buy the token and then that obviously pushes the price up. Then the other person buys the to token and then you're like selling to that that person the tokens that you acquired just at the exact right price before they did, right? So you can exploit the users. You can essentially be front running the, the system by proposing the the blocks. So that turned into a bit of a problem on 
uh, Ethereum because then obviously uh, people were competing to capture that extra economic value and they sort of started centralizing on these uh, flash bots who were these company who found a way to max you know optimally um arrange that situation to harvest as many fees as possible from users so not only is it uh, a centralizing force in the network it's also obviously drawing away uh, it's like rent seeking it's basically drawing away money from the economic activity of the user base so this would be an area then i assume that bch will have an advantage in the sense that not only is our scaling not filled up with spam of people just trying to capture all these little uh, fees at very marginal utility. But on the other hand, it also allows more of an economy to flourish rather than obviously the less rent seeking you have, the better, right? Yeah, um, certainly. Uh, the architecture on for Bitcoin Cash, um, you know, by by not having uh, the minor ordering of of transactions where a miner can jump in between you and the UTX that you're spending, in most cases, that that is both a scalability benefit and a uh, a user experience benefit, and the users don't get you know a haircut on on nearly every transaction. Um, so it's still possible to build contract systems that do have minor extractable value, but it's a a contract design problem where we have a lot more. We have a lot more flexibility, a lot various strategies we can use as a as a solution to the problem. Uh, whereas if we had an, an architecture where miners always ordered the transactions, we would just kind of be short of luck. There would be not, not much opportunity to innovate away from that architectural problem. What, what kind of solutions? Well, a good example actually is uh, zero confirmation escrows that um, you can you can design a, a contract system that the the maximum extractable value for a miner uh, uh only occurs if the miner is colluding with a user who is manipulating the protocol in a way they're not supposed to um so that uh, such that the um the honest party ends up uh getting what they want and then the miner gets what they want but the attacker uh ends up spending twice twice their uh twice their amount uh, so th there are uh, a number of like mechanism design things you can do in contracts where you can take advantage of minor minor extractable value to provide value in in a protocol so it, it can be a good thing as well well wow, that's crazy because so for again everybody <laughs> zero confirmation escrows is this idea that you've proposed which uh hasn't you know rolled out into the network or anything but it seems to me i've mentioned it on the show a couple of times it seems like an excellent idea which is that you and i can essentially guarantee that a transaction will instantly be uh, verified between us if I'm sending you $10 and what I do is I back that up with $100 that I lock in a sort of in the transaction so that if I then later fraud if it's detected that somebody is trying to double spend the miner can then grab that $100 so I'm essentially putting a 10 to 1 bet against myself that my the transaction is not going to be double spend so then you obviously as the receiving party would have extreme confidence and you can make that as arbitrarily big as you want i could put the every all the rest of the money you know that i have in my wallet i could just in every transaction put it all on the line that i'm not gonna fraud you and you, you can obviously see that and yeah. be very uh, confident that i'm not gonna try and scam you right right um yeah and actually uh, all you need um the, the maximum value you can get uh, out of the system is if you um, if you lock twice the amount of the the transactions. So if you uh, if you're making a ten dollar transaction, then locking ten dollars in Bitcoin Cash also in an output that the miner would be able to steal if you 
attempted to double spend, um, that is sufficient proof that if there's there are only a, a few um, rare circumstances where the transaction won't go through uh, paying as we expected. And in those situations, the miner is more incentivized to double cross you and take your money and give me the payment I expected than to yes. uh, collude with you and and uh, give you a you know five percent discount or whatever you were trying to get out of um, out of the fraud. Yeah, yeah. So this, I mean, this is obviously just important because I've been seeing people have been asking about it in the Telegram groups and stuff, and it's so unfortunate all everything that happened with BTC because people just don't have this idea that Bitcoin is instant. Like, even though. It was, you know, from the very yeah. start, Satoshi was like, within a couple of seconds, you can already know, is there or is there not going to be fraud? And not only is that critical for in-person in uh, merchant transactions and so on, but also online, that just allows things to just snowball so much faster. If we think about a BCH app going viral, uh, like we've seen it even to some extent with the cash rain when that was kicking off. If everybody's just getting their money, just ping, 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 ping straight into your wallet and you can already spend it to be part of the, the next hype you know, cycle yeah. or the next part of the app or, or linking apps together, right? That if then you're sending transactions to one app and it's doing another app, another app, then it all just flows at the speed of computing basically, right? right? Yeah, um, and it's it's definitely a nice feature of uh, of Bitcoin Cash that uh, being able to respend funds that you get in uh, immediately is um, opportunistically possible. Uh, like uh, optimistically, I guess would be the the right way that it gets used a lot in, in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, if you are in a high trust society or a, a high trust community of some sort, um, optimistic spending is um, is. Uh, very effective. Um, you know, if, if there's very little uh, shoplifting in a in a uh, in your area of the world, and it's super uncommon for payment fraud to happen, um, there's no additional security needed versus um, versus uh, uh, with with zero confirmation spending. Um, but then we do also have additional strategies to uh, make it where fraud is also not profitable. Um, so in the larger scheme of things it's it will be important for us to design our systems so that uh, we don't have kind of an, an overwhelming systemic risk where if everybody is is widely across the entire world doing zero conf uh, payments and very little uh, additional development has gone into um protecting against yeah, systemic issues where you have a miner and an evil wallet maker and uh, and a number of other individuals all colluding at the same time and suddenly uh, kind of a global distributed fraud ring pops up. Um, we want to make sure we build our ecosystem so that uh, that fraud ring would never be worth investing in. Um, and zero conf escrows is another is another way to uh, essentially demonstrate credit uh, the credible threat that we would destroy that fraud ring immediately and it would never make any money. Yes. Yes. Okay. So obviously there's the implementation, there's the rollout and stuff, but there's also just the game theory that having that uh, is sort of like, a, it's not exactly, but similar to like a mutually assorted destruction uh, type of idea. Like don't, <laughs> don't mess yeah. with this because we're actually working right. on it. And it gives, it gives a lot of credibility, I would say, obviously to BCH that the community is thinking about these things. Recently, there was a thread that uh, kind of popped up on Twitter um, between um, Esteban, who we had on the show recently, and Grant from LTC Underground, who we had on the show recently as well, too. And they were talking about uh, essentially UTXO commitments and how why, why do we need to store all this archival blockchain data? Like, can't we just keep the UTXO? 
XOs and then kind of throw away or archive a lot of the rest of it and blah, blah. And they were essentially between them had, had kind of reasoned their way through the UTXOs. And I was able to come in and say, yeah, you know, the Bitcoin cash community <laughs> knows about this. It, it's a thing. Here's what it's called. Look it up. We're already working on it. Blah, 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 blah. And I think all these subtle things kind of snowball on themselves as people look deeper and deeper into it, into understanding that it's a credible case that Bitcoin cash could be the, the global reserve currency, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I'll add uh, just a tack on to the end of the ZeroConf uh, escrow discussion um, that uh, ZeroConf escrows, um, that chip, that proposal uh, certainly is um, still something I, I'll be looking at in the next few years um, and still useful uh, just for um, kind of retail in-person payments. Uh, it's also a very useful mechanism design for um more complicated contract systems where uh and i expect especially for it to be used um in in certain kinds of decentralized exchanges like uh, token decentralized exchanges where uh you want effectively transaction finality the moment somebody creates a creates a uh goes to fill an order if you will um yes. so it's a it's a useful mechanism design uh even beyond just uh payment situations all right, cool. So we got to touch on the price really briefly. I don't want to waste too much time uh, talking about this, but we have to put it in every episode. USD, $113.50, down slightly. One BTC is 246.13 BCH, so we're at all-time lows, but I'm not worried about that in the slightest, as we'll see all the good stuff coming uh, soon, plus obviously the ordinal stuff, which we'll discuss next time. One ETH is 16.4 BCH, so slightly down on that ratio too. Very quickly, do you have any, uh, you already sort of mentioned about the price of BCH being a bit more ideological uh, at this point, but do you, do you hold other cryptos or speculate on them or do you have any interest in any of that? I'm uh, not much of a trader. Uh, also, you know, not a, not a, not a whale in any sense of the terms. I, I, I'm uh, probably not a very interesting person to follow on the, uh, on the, on the prices front um obviously anybody working on bitcoin cash these days is not in it for the money um you 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 don't take a 98 percent drawdown or whatever and still work on it for the for the money um which is i would say a a a feature of the community right now um is that you know look around these are the people who will be here uh kind of uh come hell or high water um the uh the, the our our goals are to have uh, uh, digital cash that that expands um, human human financial freedom, uh, and and the price is uh, not something many of us are have been have been f- solely focused on for a while. Yes, yes. Well, I think it's uh, something that really yeah strikes me about about BCH is that the every time the BTC people are always posting that price graph in arguments and stuff. And they, they say it like, see, look, we've wrecked you guys, but I, I don't, they don't click that. It's, it's the opposite. It's like, who are these guys that are still here? They're still hammering away. They haven't given up. I'm still having to argue with them. Like what, what is this? And it like, what could be so overridingly important that it could persist through that? Uh, obviously also as time goes on, everybody you know yeah liberty exactly. i couldn't have said it better in one word that's exactly it right we're here here for liberty so speaking of liberty got liborth uh, a bit of play on words there i'll have to i'll have to use that in a in a rap song or something that's a good one. um 
LiveAuth. So LiveAuth is your JavaScript library for building BCH apps. Uh, it says here, an ultra lightweight JavaScript library for Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin and BitAuth applications has no dependencies and works in all JavaScript environments, including Node.js, Deno and browsers. So obviously not everybody in the world is a developer, but starting with the ELI 5 explanation of what this is, how long you've been doing it and why it's important, and then moving up to the one for our uh, dev sort of listeners, can you just walk me through LibAuth? Yeah. Um, let's see. I think I, I started on LibAuth in you know, 2017 or something. Um, LibAuth uh, is, a, is a JavaScript library. Uh, it's written in TypeScript, a uh, a typed uh, language that compiles to JavaScript. Um, it is the a result of of me working on Bitcoin and now Bitcoin Cash um, projects for about ten years or so now. Um, uh, since since twenty thirteen, uh, many of the JavaScript libraries that deal with cryptocurrencies. Um, descend basically from from one library that existed in 2011. Um, they, it's you know, it is split and been kind of rewritten in large parts many times. There are I think four or five different projects that that kind of trace their lineage to some code written in 2011. Um, and in my in my time at, at BitPay, I, I worked on BitPay's version is is Bitcore, and uh, there are some uh, some some programming choices uh and and design styles uh which i, I would call very javascripty um very javascripty programming style uh which is is actually can be very useful in applications with user interfaces and applications where you are working on the final thing that people are going to be um, interacting with. Uh, you get a much faster development style uh to, to build things that way um but then if you build a library with that style, um, you necessarily uh, cut yourself out from some important optimizations and, and uh, ways of being able to customize the, the um, features that the library provides. Um, so at LibAuth, I, I started as a, a sort of de novo, yeah, completely from scratch implementation of what I would like the JavaScript uh, ecosystem to have uh, with respect to Bitcoin Cash. Uh, Bitcoin at the time, actually, I started it, I think, before the split. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I started with um, WebAssembly implementations of all of the cryptography that is used in um, in the Bitcoin system. Uh, in fact, I think it was the, the first WebAssembly implementation of most of those uh, libraries. I was, it was very cutting edge at the time, uh, had one of the first um, uh implementations that abstracted away the instantiation of WebAssembly. Um, and uh, in the recent version of LibAuth actually um, uh, cleans that up the first time since 2018 or so when, when WebAssembly, uh, WebAssembly uh, is a, a low-level um, a low level virtual machine, essentially, that you can get access to in JavaScript now, where you can compile C and Rust and C++ applications, things that are, are written for a machine level uh, to be very efficient. Um, you can essentially access this very efficient machine from JavaScript, and it's a very good place to run cryptography uh uh, fancy math, uh, things where you, you need a lot of a lot of CPU power. Um, so uh, the recent version of LibAuth um, evolves some of those those older WebAssembly interfaces uh, in in clever ways that are now possible given some changes in the past uh, three or four years. 
such that um, if you're as a user of LibAuth, you no longer have to even think about how you get access to the WebAssembly stuff that that's in there. Um, uh, by and large, when you when you use a function in LibAuth, if it uses cryptography under the covers, it'll actually just call the the internally instantiated WebAssembly instance, uh, and you never have to really think about it. So that's the, the V2 alpha that's currently out right now. Um, required a lot of kind of rearchitecting and and uh, also needed to to reapproach how the 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 internal virtual machine um, implementation for Bitcoin Cash's virtual machine how that works as well um, to to make uh, make way for the uh, upgrades in the past few years uh, upgrades to the math and introspection and now tokens um, so yeah uh, and I'd say uh, the the long term um, the future plan for Liboth now is um, Liboth has um, I, I didn't really describe uh, that when you use uh, features from Liboth um, because it is written in this uh, a functional programming style a very functional programming style um, that is uh, every function in Liboth uh, takes an input and and returns an input um, instead of uh, importing classes and big objects and instantiating them and then having them maintain lots of state uh, in your program. Um, Liboth is is kind of wholly designed around being a functional library so that you import functions and you pass your state into the function and it returns state. Um, but at no point in time when you mess with the library, um, does does your interactions with the library modify the library? Um, and that's where things get real, real messy. Um, uh, and if you, if you actually, if you look at how a lot of different wallets have used um, JavaScript libraries that are descended from some of that early code I mentioned, the stuff that came in 2011, uh, you know, Bitcoin and Crypto uh, Coin JS, and there's a few others um, that uh, they all um, tend to to be um, sort of stateful. They'd be they're very JavaScripty. You import a class and then you mess with it, um, and that means that uh, it's very it's very easy for developers to get their heads wrapped around and and work with. Um, also, so it's a, it's it's a useful style a paradigm in a lot of places. But it has a, a pretty big trade-off of if you want to change one little thing about it, like by and large, you need to fork the whole library and make your change to that kind of to one of those kind of core classes. You need to add something or, or remove it. Um, there are ways of extending it, like inheritance and such, that are um, have their own cans of worms. Uh, and and if you look at how the JavaScript ecosystem developed, uh, you know, from 2011 to even now, some of the, the wallets that use this stuff, many of them have their their own custom fork that make little changes here and there. And sometimes they're able to kind of upstream those changes. But by and large, it means that you you have a kind of a big mess every time um, you need to make uh, a, a small change to add to the behavior of the of the library itself. Um, so Liboth, um, I I, I sort of began. Uh, with a, sort of almost a list of you know, bullet point list of things I planned not to do, uh, things that bothered me about the JavaScript, the way that the JavaScript ecosystem had evolved so far to that point. Um, and so I, I keep to it, uh, a you know, a, obsessive to an obsessive extent. I, I make sure that um, uh, each function is purely functional; it doesn't maintain its own state. And um, and then I, I describe it as exporting early and often. Often um, you you export even the 
the lowest level functions that are available in Liboth. Um, even though higher levels of the library will use some of those lower level utilities at, at more and more complex layers. Um, generally, if you are doing something with Liboth and you need to change something about the way you're doing it, um, you can like go and look at the function that you're using and you can copy its internal contents, move it to your <laughs> move it to your project and just do something different at the moment you needed to do something different. So it, it means that the the extensibility uh, question um, can be approached in, in a much different way, um, which is also very useful, actually, in the JavaScript ecosystem uh, due to uh, dead code elimination as well. Um, if you if you do it the very JavaScripty way, uh, it's very difficult or or technically infeasible to eliminate code that you're not using from your project that is part of the library that you're using. So if you if you import like a like a four megabyte four megabytes of JavaScript um, and then you only use it to like compute addresses, um, you might have like the simplest application in the world, but it takes like you know. 500 milliseconds for it to for it to instantiate on a on a cell phone because you're importing the whole thing. Um, and with Liboth, uh, the the library itself is is built so that your your build system can only import just what you're using, uh, and you you can get just those thousand lines or whatever, just a, a few kilobytes, um, and your your load times can be essentially instant. Um, but that requires a very different approach to how the how the library itself works. You you kind of have to start from scratch if you want uh, if you want the library to be built like that. Um, so that's what I did, and and I've I've on and off uh, worked on it over the past six years or so. Um, and now, um, kind of what's next with Liboff is. Um, I'm I'm working on and uh, in the next uh, year or so, um, hope to have a proper. Uh, I ca I'm calling it uh, LiveAuth engine, um, a a wallet engine where the um, the system itself uh, is um, the utilities exported from LiveAuth give you some of the basic features of what you would expect to be able to uh, some of the basic features required of a Bitcoin Cash wallet by and large uh existing tooling um exposes if if anything uh very simple interfaces for creating for example um single signature addresses and spending money from single signature addresses and you know if you're lucky they'll they'll also support one way of doing a multi-sig address um and the 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 wider uh, UTXO-based cryptocurrency ecosystem, uh, at least derived from the, the Bitcoin lineage, um, has kind of been stuck at that uh, level of development in wallets for, you know, since 2013. I mean, at BitPay, we were working on uh, uh, the first um, the first multi-signature wallet in 2013. Uh, the first one that hit consumers um, was Copay, uh, now the BitPay wallet. Um, that I uh, that was the first, the world's first multi-sig wallet uh, that was actually in use by users, of course, designed by Satoshi, the, the multi-sig strategy. Um, but the the wallet world sort of um, the development of the wallet world in a lot of ways sort of ended there. Um, and wallets mostly focus on providing nice user experiences over the same sort of underlying tech which is just single sig payments. And if you're lucky, maybe multi-sig, but by and large, if you use multi-sig, you're, you're still stuck in a single wallet. Um, like if you use multi-sig uh, for this certain wallet, it can only talk to other instances of itself. 
when you're signing transactions. So you might have a multi-sig wallet, but in practice, you're still stuck with the, um, you know, this, uh, uh, potentially if there's a supply chain vulnerability in that particular wallet and you happen to update all of your clients at the same time, you're you're still hacked. Um, <laughs> so uh, what, what we really need to get to is uh, as an ecosystem, we need... Um, wallets to have sort of this baseline functionality, including multi-sig, where a wallet produced by one vendor can can sign on to a multi-sig transaction. And then you can have on, on, on your other device, you can have a wallet installed on a on a different operating system in a in a di- you know different hardware, different uh, manufacturing and a different supply chain and a different wallet uh, vendor, you know, so entirely different package to everything. Um, so that you, even if, if one side, if, if you have a, a, a hardware level vulnerability on your laptop, you know, your phone, um, is, is a totally different set of, of trust relationships, um, where as long as both of them aren't compromised at the same time, your money is still not hacked. And we need to get to an ecosystem that has has that sort of support. Um, so I've been working for a while on on getting that that kind of support in Liboth, where you can uh, actually define uh, as a as a JSON document. You can define how a wallet works um, in Liboth. They're called authentication templates, um, and. Yeah, and I and in in this hypothetical future, you would be able to import, um, or the developers of these wallets would be able to import um, kind of well-reviewed standard authentication templates that um, that kind of tell the wallet how to deal with a certain type of UTXO um, and how to sign transactions or what other sorts of actions are possible there. Um, and that's how we kind of get to a, a next level um, ecosystem where wallets can deal with, you know, not only being able to sign for each other's multi-sig transactions, but also being able to participate in things like decentralized exchanges and, and sidechain bridges and things like that. Um, so the next step for LiveAuth is, is building that kind of base engine uh, with the goal being that a lot of different um, wallets will be able to kind of import this this whole engine um and focus prime they can focus primarily on their on their user interface um but a lot of the the tech that would take years literally takes years for most of these companies to build and and most of them fail to ever build it you know very few wallets actually support multi-sig and and the ones that do it's you know kind of a side feature that in many cases doesn't get updated very often things like that um if we can get to a place in the ecosystem where we have you know uh, a variety of of sort of open source engines that everybody everybody uh, uses and reviews really well, and and those provide some of the basic uh, the basic technological features. Um, then wallet developers can mostly focus on kind of their user experiences and and the things that wallet developers focus on, like the onboarding experience and and backup if there is a backup or, or recovery strategies, things like that that end up impacting real users a lot more in the in long run. Um, but they end up being a bit of a treadmill because you know, nobody really gets past working on those things. Yes. Okay. All right. So I'm just imagining uh, that was amazing and i'm i'm with you right but my mother listens to this show and to her that was like five minutes of of greek right so i'm just gonna (laughs) try and translate uh some of what you just said so essentially what jason is saying is that since 2017 for the last uh six years he has rebuilt an entire sort of basic lego tool toolkit of components to build bitcoin cash wallets that would usually take 
uh, years and years and years to develop their most powerful uh, wallets. But instead, that will all basically be a, not exactly a five minute job, but a, a matter of a couple of weeks for Bitcoin Cash developers to make wallets more powerful than anybody else could do in several years. Now, this is all done in JavaScript, which is the world's most popular uh, programming language. But the trade-off usually would be that you would suffer the uh, performance hit. Like JavaScript is very popular, but it's also not uh, very optimized in terms of the amount of throughput uh, you can get out of it, which is why JavaScript runs in in browsers, but it doesn't necessarily run, you know, like on top of the line computing. Like Bitcoin Core nodes are, are you know, more, not really written in JavaScript, right? Uh, at that lower level, you need the better computer performance out of your hardware. However, uh, LibAuth also fixes that problem. So it's the most accessible wallet, but it also has integrations with the cryptography and so on to get super high performance out of it at the same time. And even better than all of this is that if anybody disagrees with anything you've done or wants to remix it in some way, it's all built out of these small little components so they can just pick and choose whatever they like and make uh, their own even better version, which I would say is probably going to be pretty hard for anyone to do, but uh, the the potential is there. Or, you know, if uh, you suddenly decided that, um, yeah. you know, fiat currency was was actually the, the best and you decided to stop working <laughs> on this, well, all, all the pieces are still there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say on the performance question, um, you you know, actually, you'd be surprised how um, how performant JavaScript is in general these days, because it, it's used by the world's browsers. So um, there are a number of companies out there who who lose a million dollars for every every tenth, tenth of a second that, uh, that it takes for their page to load. So I mean, they they've invested uh, quite literally, um, millions of man hours of, of some of the most talented engineers that have, that have ever lived, um, <laughs> on, on optimizing the performance of JavaScript. Um, so in general, um, even, even for a for relatively expensive computing tasks, um, you can get some pretty good performance out of JavaScript and LibAuth uses the internal WebAssembly stuff. So, it, uh, the, the stuff that's very, uh, computationally expensive, um, is very, very fast because it's essentially written in a low level language that, that can be executed inside the JavaScript environment. Um, but the other stuff is uh, basically all kind of glue code sort of stuff where the performance of it is essentially irrelevant. Nobody is trying to create a million transactions in the same second on their phone. Um, and if they wanted to, it would only take, you know, still a full second or something like that. I mean, it's a, the performance is, is way, way, way beyond what any human could ever could ever perceive. Um, and then I would say also uh, on the on kind of higher level of um yeah, my goal is to get LibAuth to a point where um, wallets that are building their stack with JavaScript at some level in their components um, can use LibAuth uh, internally, even if they their user interface isn't like a web-based interface, or or if they're not even using JavaScript uh, for most of their most of their logic, they can use JavaScript like we use WebAssembly. Like within LibAuth, we use WebAssembly. We just kind of call into it and get responses back for the cryptography. Um, you could build your you could very reasonably build your wallet in Swift on iOS and call into the JavaScript, call into LibAuth, um, and and get your response back, get your signed transaction back and never have to deal with like any of the 
um, kind of the blockchain Bitcoin cash virtual machine primitives. You can just use it like a black box sort of um, a very well reviewed one that's that's being used and, and reviewed by other wallets as well. Um, so there's that. And then I would say also uh, it would be a long term goal um, for other implementations in other languages to implement the same um, the same basic spec for how Libos wallet engine works. Um, definitely made, would be a major goal to have multiple implementations across multiple languages and have uh, wallets um, using using those other implementations as well. Uh, there's nothing to stop somebody from building a, a Rust or a C++ equivalent or something like that. Um, and maybe we would maybe we would uh, actually compile it to WebAssembly and use it Liboth. Um, <laughs> instead of using our JavaScript implementation, we'd have the JavaScript implementation, which is a little bit easier to hack on. And we'd have the really, really fast WebAssembly implementation that you know is basically uh basically machine code that you run in javascript um so there are a lot of uh a lot of options there um but uh it's actually in a lot of ways um you know i, I haven't been working on this straight for six years as i will work on it for a little bit here and then i go work on um you know bit off ide or i'll go work on uh chain graph and some of those others um or work on uh bitcoin cash protocol upgrades um contract designs, et cetera. But uh, in my time working on LibAuth, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what that kind of the specifications for what that kind of engine layer looked like. So implementing it is actually not, it, it's a it's a task, but it's um, something that can be done by a talented programmer in, in a month in, in whatever language they're comfortable in. Um, and uh, 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 hopefully I've saved you five years of tinkering because um, you can just copy copy what LibAuth currently has. and, and um, it's even in Liboth, it's even written in a super, super purely functional style. So like you could probably write the same thing in like half the amount of code if your style is not terribly important to you and you um, want to um, uh, yeah, implement it in a more native native way for the language you, you prefer. Um, but yeah, so we will get to a place where um, we have have figured out what the kind of uh, highest common highest common factor is uh in wallets and and we have specified that pretty well and it just so happens that it's easy for me to specify it in javascript and and immediately useful to a very wide range of applications um but there's nothing stopping people from from re-implementing that relatively quickly in rust or c or whatever your preferred language is so yeah to the upshot of all of this is that essentially the base the baseline is there for a, an explosion <laughs> i can't emphasize this enough of uh tech innovation within bitcoin cash because you know sometimes people think oh okay so let's say tomorrow if in some cases if uh you know uh, the amount of devs in bch 10x well, if they all come in and there's no real coordination and nobody knows what's, everybody's just going crazy, you know, money is flowing around, VCs are getting involved, like all this stuff suddenly kicks off. Well, if there's no foundation, then there's going to emerge competing standards. People are going to build this, they're going to build that. Some people are going to do it this way. And it's going to just turn into a giant mess, right? But if the, the, the base tools are already there and everybody starts using these same extremely high, you know, highly engineered tools, then the rate of innovation and change can just uh, explode. And this is strong enough to handle that kind of a influx of developers for something that is going to global scale. That's my kind of um, yeah. take take on all this. And I, yeah. I'm actually a huge great summary, uh, yeah. believer. 
<laughs> yeah. Just, um, on, on that point, you know, a lot of people are down on yeah JavaScript performance. I mentioned that because I know some people are less yeah. about that, but I personally am actually a huge, uh, I'm just doing JavaScript all day, every day. I rarely code in anything else these days. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, the performance concerns overblown because of exactly what you said, the network effect of people work on is just, it's just right. so much greater. That makes yeah. I mean, work. it wouldn't matter what the language you could start with the world's worst language. Some people would claim that's JavaScript. Um, and, and if, if there are, you know, a couple hundred companies that all lose millions of dollars, every, every mil, you know, a few milliseconds that it takes, you know, slower to, to operate. Um, you can imagine that that's going to generate, you know, quite literally billions of dollars of capital uh, investment in making that ecosystem fast um and and just the you know just the web advertising industry is you know bigger than that so um yeah uh, you with javascript you, you get some benefits of that you are you're kind of building on a system that is already absurdly has absurdly high levels of capital ex investment pre-existing um but yeah um certainly not not tied to tied to the language in any respect uh, uh for our um for our wider development um but yeah so having that kind of basic engine also gets us um and i expect will be an important way in which uh bitcoin cash wallets will start to support um both cash tokens and then um applications made possible by cash tokens so um yes go, going from uh, a wallet that does single signature payments and has like a nice interface for them going from that to a wallet that supports like doing a swap on a decentralized exchange like that is a um just a massive technological difference um and if you are trying to write the code from scratch to just work with a single decentralized exchange um from within your wallet uh you would you you might end up spending months just testing that you didn't break something um for that one particular use case and so um if we're gonna ever grow at any kind of meaningful speed we need it to be possible for for wallets to review uh for wallet developers to sort of review how uh, a new protocol works or a new new decentralized application works um and have that be sort of widely reviewed by the security community by by people who who know what they're looking at when they're looking at utxo based contract systems you need to review kind of how the protocol works and then you also need to be able to review your implementation of how you make your wallet work with that protocol um and and the investment required there uh would be truly massive if we didn't have tooling to go from sort of a standardized specification for the protocol to a real implementation in your wallet um, without writing all of that code <laughs> and so that's yes. that's the goal of getting uh, to, to this kind of engine state of the ecosystem where we have kind of common engines and a common specification format um, and you, you you give the engine a json file or whatever de describing the protocol and the engine produces the implementation of the protocol and uh uh, in your in your wallet then um you you basically only need to worry about implementing like how you know where you put the buttons and where you show the data that the engine tells you about the state of the protocol like you know what what does the order book look like um what's the the latest price or whatever a decentralized exchange uh what are the trades that this user currently has open um you limit limit marketers things like that as a as a wallet developer that's already a huge amount of work to to implement that kind of stuff 
um, to implement the kind of user interfaces there. If you also had to implement the underlying code to make the order book itself work and to like create a transaction that adds a new limit order to the book, um, like yeah, now you're dealing with levels of development that no wallet will ever get unless they're they're 100 focused on building just that uh just that feature in their in their application so um that certainly might happen um but other ecosystems have actually you know kind of proximally solved this problem by by basically just having the developers of the decentralized application um you know publish a website that everybody trusts the code is right is working on right um and uh people can review the that website um but uh and and there, there are um kind of authentication validation strategies to make sure that it's the the one you're expecting to find but, but kind of by and large um you do end up losing quite a bit of security when you have a single interface in many of these cases you have a single interface with essentially single sig security operating these um decentralized applications um, and if we want to get to a, a higher level of development, it would be great if you could have, you know, three different wallets that can all understand this protocol. And it's possible as a, as a large corporate entity, if you want to put a, a $50 million limit order somewhere on whatever, um, you have signatures across three sets of devices or even three sets of multi-sig devices where you have like your operations team in this in, in this office and your operations team on in this country and your operations team in this country, each of them approve the the limit order being placed at that certain level. Um, and if we're gonna get to that level of development, um, we, we actually do kind of need a, um, a different foundation uh, that we're building on. And and so having, having decentralized applications be, um, deployable to these end wallets where wallets are importing these uh these kind of protocol templates um that gets us to a place where uh we can break out the development and and you know somebody some people can be focusing on the development of the protocol and other people can be focusing on the development of wallets and they don't have to be the same people <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right. So speaking of that, let's turn now to, so we've got the libauth is the basic JavaScript uh, area. And then you also have your bitauth IDE, which ties into a lot of what you were saying. So it's an integrated development of environment, which people can think of as a, it's like, I think it was like Google Docs or like Microsoft Word, but for programmers, right? So you have a lot of extra tools and little features and, and buttons. So Visual Studio Code is a classic example uh, for the programmers, but for everybody else, they can just think of it as like Microsoft Word, but just like pumped to the max uh, for programmers. And then this is that, but pumped to the max for Bitcoin Cash, right? Is that? Yeah, for, for, yeah, for contract development. Um, yeah, and that started out, uh, you know, that's also many years in development. It started out as my own personal experimentation with learning how, you know, Satoshi's virtual machine worked, um, uh, the, the many of the choices he made and, um, uh in how the contract system for bitcoin uh originally worked i experimented with a, a lot of the opcodes that that uh were disabled in early years for um uh denial of service uh, security reasons um have since been re-enabled on bitcoin cash um uniquely in the among the ecosystem uh and then um it's uh, where i 
uh, sort of learned to use it. I was building the, the tool that I learned to use it in and, uh, and uh, over time uh, got more and more comfortable with uh, kind of the programming model and uh, the mental model for how you how you work with this stuff. Um, and so that's where I uh, also experimented with um, the upgrades that I've, I've um, proposed recently. So there's some of the introspection stuff and uh, uh, improvements to um, virtual machine numbers and math and, uh, and now tokens. Um, that is where I was, uh, bit off ideas where I experimented with early contract ideas that, uh, that eventually, um, became cash tokens. But, um, yeah, so a bit, a bit off idea you can actually think of as being a, um, in, ultra developer focused kind of power tool um that uh when we when we get to where the liboth engine is is kind of working um bidoff id will essentially be a wallet it'll be a, a very fancy wallet where you can actually write the code for a contract and then use it <laughs> um and and it's actually internally it works that way already it's actually doing it like if you check the console it's actually like creating transactions from what you're seeing every time you type a character it tries to compile that programming language down into bytecode and stick it in a transaction and evaluate the transaction in a perfect copy of the virtual machine that uh, is running in the javascript so uh, I've, I've implemented the virtual machine that bitcoin cash uses in javascript and i have actually implemented it with it, like kind of additional um instrumentation and tooling so that um you know as you type a character uh we kind of you know, decompose what you've written um uh, we we compile it and run it but then we also uh run kind of a trace of exactly what happened when you ran it and we associate it line by line with uh with the program as it's evaluating so um as a as a developer when you're typing like you can see you type an, an opcode over here and you see what happens on the stack if your entire program is evaluated you see what happened on the stack at that line um, as you type uh, and so it actually makes it uh it really reduces the kind of the the mental development cycles required when you're when you're like learning how to use the 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 stack based virtual machine and how to use kind of the op codes and the and the the, the bytecode format that bitcoin cash has um yeah yeah so it takes it it, it makes the the kind of the different the, the uh the distance between you know typing the code and seeing the result of the code it takes that from you know possibly a few seconds or if you didn't have a, a virtual machine that you actually have a lot of for the early years of of bitcoin most people were like kind of evaluating this in their head or they were or they're trying to run it on a kind of a rigged up version of um a, a rigged up uh copy of of the c plus plus implementation where they would just kind of run it as a utility in the in the code base for for bitcoin core at the time for satoshi's client um so this give, pulls all that out and puts it kind of a higher level where developers can can just type and see see what the, the results of their typing live uh, as they're typing um makes it a lot uh easier for you to follow along yeah, so it's essentially like a little window into because obviously, as we were, we'll talk a bit more about or we've already kind of touched on, but the UTXO model of uh, the BCH as compared to sort of the EVM model is you're essentially trading scalability on the plus side, but the con is kind of developer complexity. And so this kind of tool just makes that tons easier because as you're developing the Bitcoin contracts, you can see it sort of updating in real time. Like yeah. you said, so then if we've got, uh, 
you've got that and then you've also got chain graph so this is the third <laughs> little piece i wanted to touch on this is all the foundations before we get on to the, the, the sort of major uh topics uh it's so chain graph is technically a multi-node blockchain indexer and graphql api so to me what that means is it's like a service for developers to query blockchain data in a more comprehensible way so for instance when people are used to they can go and they can go look up um you know june analytics or any of these blockchain browsing sites and have a look at oh how many coins are in addresses over a hundred thousand and how many coins will have been moved within the last three weeks and you know how many people are using cash fusion versus not using cash fusion graft over time all those kind of things they're essentially just pretty ways of displaying the kind of information that is checkable with chain graph is is that right yeah um yeah and uh, from a developer's standpoint um uh using chain graph is um uh, the the goal is to is to have a, a pretty a, a base a base kind of foundational layer that lots of companies um might start start their company with um and uh be able to work with blockchain data um in a SQL database effectively. Um, and, and also, uh, the GraphQL API actually makes it where you don't have to, in, in many situations, you don't need to deal with the SQL either. Um, yeah, it's uh, the GraphQL API tends to be a little bit more natural, uh, especially for kind of front end developers, people who are building applications, um, to work with. And, uh, you can get a very solid, uh, it, it's a very solid kind of backend API layer that is built correctly for your company to get very large um <laughs> uh, so you know you start building with this and um you know even if you don't mess with it too much you don't um you don't think too much about the the back end stuff like it will work for your first few thousand users and then if you hire 20 uh additional developers and you've got a devops team and stuff like that you're not going to be um uh, re-architecting big, big chunks of your system kind of from scratch in order to, to, uh, account for your new scale or, um, to account for your new, uh, like need for development agility. Um, so, and, and the background for this actually comes from, um, uh, in 2015 or so, uh, the, the Bitcoin industry, um, really began reeling in a lot of ways uh from the kind of rapid change that happened in the underlying economics of of bitcoin as a system like we went from an industry that um in 2013 you could still you could still send a bitcoin transaction with no fee and it would go through um like by and large um bitcoin was quite a bit less adversarial it was much smaller uh and um, the kind of block size scaling stuff had not yet, uh, had not really risen to the forefront. Um, and, uh, so there, there wasn't much of a, of a debate there that we were still well below the, the one megabyte, uh, um, denial of service limit at the time. Uh, so a lot of businesses had, had built their business on, on the idea that first there would only ever be one chain. It'd be the one with the, with most work. Um, and that would be, uh, you know, un, uncontroversially Bitcoin uh, would be the one with the most work. And many of those companies like never really planned to add altcoins at the time. It's just altcoins were all of the others. And they were just going to build their, build their company um, on just 
the just the Bitcoin network, they had their backend set up to um, to consult with, uh, you know, if you were kind of new, you just you just had one node or you had one node behind a, a wall of you would set up kind of your boundary nodes um, that were uh, the nodes that were connecting to the wider network. And then you would set up your internal nodes that were the ones you talked to and you didn't let other people talk to so that if there was an active vulnerability, you could you could kind of have still some protection between the, the network and your backend. And then also if one of your nodes just fell over, if there was a, a, a hardware downtime or some some un, unresolved bug or something like that, you'd be able to switch between your internal ones. So like if you were a pretty advanced company, you had a, a boundary node and a, and a set of fallback nodes that were you're you're talking to um, closer to you, um, but that was still kind of your basic system. Uh, and then in 2015 or so uh, and and onward, um, fees began to, began to be a problem. And so if you were building a wallet, you you kind of needed to um, you had in a lot of cases, a lot of wallets had sort of a um, everything is on fire situation where they had to, they had to, you know, drop all of their development work. This is where, you know, some of these, some of these wallets were working on advanced multi-sig where you were talking to other multi-sig wallets and you'd have multi-vendor multi-sig, like, uh, you know, the panacea for, for security in, in the cryptocurrency space. Um, many of those wallets had to drop those projects and instead focus, switch to focusing on like, estimating fees <laughs> and estimating fees became like a one-year problem for like a number of wallets uh and some of those wallets like to this day still like are still patching that code i mean it, literally you never, you can never be, uh, be done patching your wallet your fee estimation code um <laughs> and and especially now like uh and and this is right around the time where you then had a, a kind of diaspora of um you know when the fees got higher on bitcoin cat i'm sorry on bitcoin um people started looking at other other alternatives even people that were like no nah, we're never going to add anything but bitcoin those those business people had to had to look at their business model and say you know when they, you know we should have a backup <laughs> <laughs> if if this continues, we need to have alternatives. Like we need we need currency competition, meaningful currency competition. It's clear that um, that one technical system shouldn't be the basis of of all of the world's money all of the time. Um, having alternatives is protective both to you know both to the end user who gets alternatives and it's also protective to the leader because um if you are if you are the world's one digital money system and, and you're the developer of that digital money system like you're you have a a personal security concern then um like you are in a position of extreme power and extreme authority and um you're going to attract uh, all of the wrong people um, <laughs> to to influence you and um, <clears throat> try to make changes to that network or or you know break how it works uh, to to protect uh, establish financial monopolies etc. So uh, <clears throat> as a company in in that situation, if you were building a wallet, you had to start working on fee calculation if you were uh if you were working on the back end for a company that either a wallet company or uh you know a payment processor or an exchange or something like that if you hadn't already um you know some exchanges were ahead here because they already had multiple uh multiple currencies they weren't just bitcoin on and off ramps they were also you know they had pure coin and name coin and litecoin and things like that 
they uh, <clears throat> they already had backends that were pretty um, you know switchable between networks. Um, but if you were just building Bitcoin only at the time, you needed to kind of drop everything and focus on um, making your backend work for multiple currencies. Um, and uh, it was especially messy then when Bitcoin Cash. Um, split in 2017 when you know there was the SegWit activation and the Bitcoin Cash split and um, you know real real meaningful disagreement uh, within the the active commercial community the the businesses that were that were you know making their livelihood on on building this system and um, and and having people use Bitcoin in real life. Um, you know, it was active disagreements, you know, vehement disagreements often within companies where, you know, p there are factions in the company that are like, no, this is Bitcoin and no, this is Bitcoin. Um, you know, so, and this was happening all across the, all across the ecosystem. Um, and, uh, with a, a variety of, of, you know, different, different actors pushing in different ways, uh, you know, different venture capital firms, you know, picking, picking certain sides, different, different miners trying to pick different sides. And, um, certainly, uh, certainly business actors trying to pick the side that they thought would, um, would help to, you know, continue to expand the, their business and the, and the wider network. If you're in this situation as a as a uh, as a business, um, you need to reconfigure your backend to be able to swap between potentially not just different networks, but also different views of the same network or eventually different sides of the split. And you had to, so in some of these cases, you needed to architect this stuff like before the split happened. Um, and, and that simply wasn't even possible for a lot of businesses. So you saw like it took six months or even a year for some companies to, to had support for Bitcoin cash after this, the Bitcoin cash split. Um, <clears throat> and then the, um, Segwit 2x stuff, uh, where a number of businesses were sort of hoping for an, a kind of an amicable resolution where both sides got a, a, a semblance of, of what they were looking for, where the people who were very, very excited about um, about some of the technical changes with Segwit would would be able to use that, but it would be you know kind of rig on um, to the to the system, and people who didn't want to mess with it or didn't care. Uh, it wouldn't wouldn't affect them negative ne negatively necessarily, um, but at the same time, the other group would also get uh, would get their uh, uh, slightly larger block size, so that growth could continue as it had as it had until that point. Um, and that kind of segwit two x uh, uh, business community um, was still kind of hoping for that amicable resolution you know, through the, <clears throat> through 2017. So, you know, early 2017 on through kind of the end of the year, they were sort of still kind of hoping that, that what is now BTC would have both SegWit and, um, and, uh, some modest block size increase. Um, and of course, when that didn't happen, many of those companies then very quickly pivoted, you know, had to really reconsider their, their kind of worldview on this, on, on how, how Bitcoin really works, what Bitcoin governance actually is. Um, and, and add support for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin cash split, but also prepare for a situation where, um, there could be more splits in the future and they didn't want to, 
um, have admire their company in six months of technical debt or, or, or worse end up running like, you know, eight copies of their backend <laughs> on, on whole, wholly new hardware. So, you know, your, your costs, you know, double or triple every time you have a split, right? Um, if, if you have to run the same sort of, uh, same sort of infrastructure for each, each side of the split and by and large, you know, your company's use of the infrastructure isn't much beyond what the, what the network is putting through. Like if the network is putting through 10 transactions per second, you need to be able to process those 10 transactions per second, even if your company is pretty small. Um, so now a split, you need to be able to process uh, similar throughput on both sides. Um, and anyways, um, this this whole situation, um, basically as a company, um, your your kind of startup costs <laughs> get very large if you're trying to build your backend um to be pretty agile uh with with um with contentious splits and and with supporting other other blockchains so um chain graph is a um the, the scope for chain graph is to to build a a kind of foundational system for new new companies if you're if you're getting started building a company on bitcoin cash um the, the goal of chain graph is to be exactly what you need um to start today with one node in in your coin kind of uh load balanced backend where your systems are reading from the state that that node tells you about um in the same way that if you were just building your systems to talk to one node um your systems might be architected the uh, chain graph lets you start with one node, but eventually, or or rather quickly, you can add five other nodes, and they can actually be nodes developed um, in other programming languages um, released by other teams. So you can uh, chain graph. Um, uh, you can you can run BCHN, but you can also run Bitcoin Verde. You can also run Bitcoin Unlimited, whatever. You can drop in whatever nodes. Um, anything that can talk to other nodes on the peer to peer network can talk to chain graph with the same interface so that they talk to each other and chain graph is a very um kind of uh agnostic um kind of observer that will just talk to your node and pretend to be another node and will just listen really well and put all of that data in a database <laughs> and then your application layer um can uh, can then see what all of your nodes think about the network. Um, so chain graph doesn't try to, uh, and, and this is actually makes it, um, development wise, it makes chain graph a little bit harder to use than, than some of the, uh, than, than alternatives where, you know, you just install this indexer and this indexer tells you, you know, how many confirmations this, this transaction have, has, um, the, the question of how many confirmations a transaction has, it depends on what your definition of confirmation is and, and which nodes do you care about and to what extent. And <laughs> there are a number of there, you know, the simple question of how many confirmations a transaction have uh, has um, is uh, actually quite complicated if you need to to be very precise about what you believe a confirmation to be. Um, and so if, if your confirmation needs to be that, you know, first the transaction needs to be um, accepted by all the nodes that are, that you expect to be widely run on the network. You know, that's, that's step one. Uh, you'll call it zero comp after that. And then also maybe you are running nodes where you have boundary exits in, you know, one in Japan, one in the U S one in Germany or whatever. Um, 
and you want to make sure it's the first transaction you heard in all those locations. Um, Chaingraph can do that. You add you add the node to um, to the set of nodes that Chaingraph is listening to, and um, you can validate that each of those each of those nodes consider that transaction to be the first one it heard. And then, uh, if you're looking at confirmations, um, you can see that uh, you know you see a a block you now know of a block that includes this transaction now which nodes have ex which of your nodes have accepted that block as the valid next block like if there are two blocks mined around the same moment and half of your nodes think this one went through and half of your nodes think this one went through that transaction is not actually confirmed that transaction is like 40 percent confirmed and we'll see if it's confirmed in, in the next 10 minutes um so uh yeah, there are a number of things like that where as a, as a company, you have to deal with problems that like definitely as a user or as a casual kind of hobby, hobbyist situation, um, you know, you're usually not thinking about those, uh, those questions. But as a company, you need to be able to write code that that makes those choices deliberately <laughs> and if you're not writing the code then somebody else is and if the if the if their answer wasn't what you want it to be you're gonna you're in for a rude awakening when the wrong thing happens um so being able to the, the goal for chain graph is to be um it's quite a bit more complex at a at a base layer but its goal is to be um, exactly what a new company needs um to start building with so that you know, uh, a couple of years from now, you are, you know, a few lines of code essentially away from being able to make complicated decisions <laughs> about the state of the network um, that uh, that you simply don't have the access or the data to make in, in your in your stack uh, on your own unless um, unless you're using a system like Chaingraph where you are consulting with multiple nodes and, and you know what they what they saw and when they saw it and and what they believe to be the next block and things like that. Yeah, yeah. so what you're saying is that it's essentially like the you know libauth was the JavaScript uh, components that we were talking about for building the foundations of uh, wallets and I guess partly maybe in Chaingraph. Two, then we had the um, BitAuth IDE for the developer environment, and then this is the backend segment that then interfaces with all of your nodes at potentially global scale. So J Smith Dev says in the chat, so it's like a dead man switch against network segmentation attack. Industrial, I like uh, thumbs up emoji. <laughs> yeah. does, that, um, does that sound yeah, like a good um, summary? <laughs> yeah, as a as a company, if you're using Chain Graph, if there's a you know a threat of a split, like the the difficulty of adding support for both sides of the split is effectively same as just continuing support for one side um it, it, you really you can just drop in another drop in another node like even if you think one side is you, you think one side is the clear winner but you're not you're not completely sure as a business like you don't want the you don't want the uncertainty of like oh crap we have to make a decision um like that's the last thing you want to do as a business is take a side in in what amounts to like a, a political a political dispute um like that's terrible for business um a political or or in some cases, a religious dispute. Um, very bad for business to have to take sides in in kind of tribal disputes like that. Much much better if your backend allows you to just be like, okay, we're going to add support for both, and we'll see how it we'll see how it happens. Um, 
uh, Chain Graph lets you um, write your write your logic in your application to handle you know the moment of the split. You might you might fall back into sort of a fail safe mode where you kind of wait to wait to process anything, and and that's a reasonable solution um, to a to a, a controversial split where we're not sure what's going to happen at the end. Um, you can fall back to a to a fail safe. Um, strategy, or you can go ahead and before the split, you go ahead and uh, separate out the two nodes, and you start having you know your system consider the the results from the two nodes to be separate currencies entirely, and, and you can go ahead and and uh, emulate the split internally in your own system six months in advance or whatever. Uh, you know, if, if you know what's going to happen, you can go ahead and you can prep for it. You can you can the day of the split, you can just yeah, um, you, you can be off. Uh, if you're if you if you've already programmed your software to to deal with it properly, um, and I'll I'll stress also that um, the again as I was saying earlier uh, with uh, having alternative currencies is protective both for users and it's also protective for the currency to which there is an alternative. Um, if 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 you have alternatives. Uh, in the case of Bitcoin, the fact that other cryptocurrencies exist um, means that um, you know the people kind of currently at the centers of centers of power in, in that network um, are uh, somewhat protected from um, from you know physical real world violence um, trying to trying to get them to do things with that network, um, and and the same is true. Uh, precisely in in the Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash's case, the fact that we have multiple implementations is very protective to um, kind of the primary, the predominant implementation or the predominant team of the predominant implementation um, in our ecosystem. So, like the whatever the the what most miners are using, the fact that there are alternatives that people could switch to rather rather quickly. Um, is very protective because you know if they start screwing around with it um uh it's kind of sort of like the, the matrix me matrix meme of uh you know this will be the the fourth time we have reset the developer team and we're getting yeah. good at it <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. so uh the the fact that it's possible is is um is you know a credible threat that we'll do it again um and and that itself is almost uh, uh, equivalent you know game theory wise to um to having it uh you know to to declawing the team itself where you you uh, taking over taking over that implementation or or um you know dominating a network you know running a propaganda campaign or whatever in order to to cause a uh, a controversial split um is simply less effective if every business in the space can handle it fine if it's not going to bother their business and if most of the real users aren't going to care um like uh, uh if if splits are technologically easy to deal with um <laughs> and and they're not going to they're not going to throw uh, they're not going to destroy much um, much of the experience of using Bitcoin Cash or whatever, then they're going to actually happen less um, because there's there's much less incentive to bother with them, uh, and and certainly um, from from a business's standpoint, as a business, you don't want there to be a split in the network. That's like a lot more work for you. Like um, the the number of people who want a split is is rather small, and they tend to be adversaries of of the the larger goal of peer to peer you know, sound money. Um, so, uh, yeah, building, building our tooling, um, to handle this stuff really, really well is itself very protective against, um, splits actually occurring. 
um, is what I is yeah. how I can summarize that. Okay. All right. Yes or no question. Uh, yes or no answer on this question from Saeed in the chill in the chat. Then we'll move on. Does chain graph require a running full node unpruned? Um, no, actually, which is quite fun. No. Um, so. Uh, okay. Yes or no answer. We got to move on. We got to. Yeah. You, you need to sync it with a full with a pruned full node. But um, yeah, actually, there. I think there's even a. Um, uh, you need to sync it with a with an unpruned full node because the chain graph needs to save all that data to the database. Um, but then after it's synced, you can throw away that unpruned full node and and run a pruned one in the background, and you can run a dozen pruned nodes and just talk to all those pruned nodes. Um, and as long as as long as your your whole system system doesn't go down for more than two days, uh, in general, it'll it'll keep plugging along. And if, if you have major wow. downtime, you just need to spin up another another full node, uh, uh, archival full node within that two day time period, so that the uh, so the database can can catch up. Oh, wow. Okay. That's absolutely amazing. There you go. I wasn't expecting that. All right. So cash tokens, this is what this is all about, right? So we've got this big uh, upgrade coming in now under a week, I believe it literally is like six days and 22 hours or something like that. So the short, the short summary is that it's a uh, upgrade to the network, which allows a, a minor validated tokens. So you can essentially either create tokens that everybody is uh, familiar with um you know ponzi scheming icos and uh, all that good <laughs> stuff uh, uh, but also obviously the more legitimate kinds of uh, tokens for uh, projects with utility stocks and bonds and all that i'm sure you get into that and then but it also obviously powers up the um scripting capability of the entire network by allowing uh, transactions to pass state and messages among each other so you are the author of the chip uh, on cash tokens and you started with the pmv3 transaction format and sort of worked into this over a period of multiple years as i've talked about on previous episodes of the show so can you walk us through everything about cash tokens what yeah. is it how do you get to this and uh, where are we going yeah. Um, well, I, the first thing I would, I, if anybody's curious about the history of cash tokens and, and kind of the ideas, definitely check out in the, in the chip, in the specification, um, there is a uh, prior art and alternatives section where I go into much more detail, lots of links about kind of the, the whole history of tokens in the world of Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash um, and, and the world, you know, wider world of cryptocurrency. Um, so uh, where I started paying attention to this in general is um, I have uh, for many years um, and and this is another thing that kind of got sidetracked. Um, you know, if you'd asked me in 2013 what we would be working on in 2023, like, um, you know, I did not I would not have predicted where where our you know, the wider cryptocurrency ecosystem is right now. Um, there was a lot of promising development, you know, a, a lot of you know, very promising ideas. You can find a lot of today's new ideas were old ideas, you know, talked about in 2011, 2012 yeah, on, yeah. on old forums. You can find um, you can pr find kind of early precursors to all the all the major token ideas um, on uh, on those forums. Um, cash tokens approaches it actually in a quite different way. So I'll talk about that in a second. But um, a lot of the the 
a lot of what is considered new in cryptocurrency is actually at least 10 years old now. <laughs> uh, you know, basically beyond things that are um, academically new in the wider world. So zero knowledge um, uh, proofs are, are a kind of a, a fundamentally new concept. So a lot of that stuff um, is quite new. Uh, but much of the cryptocurrency world um, outside of new cryptographic primitives, um, much of it is, you know, old tech applied in applied in in to application specific ways that that are make make for useful features for real people but anyways so i my interest um in uh in cash tokens started with uh prediction markets i've i've been interested in, in prediction markets for a long time um if if you're curious i, I do recommend checking out paul stortz's uh kind of prediction market paper series, um, or actually um, check out on my blog, bitjason.com, you'll find um, a post op about prediction markets where I, I wrote kind of um, uh, like a, a bit of a, almost a manifesto sort of, of like why, I, why I'm working on prediction markets, why I think Bitcoin Cash is the right kind of base layer to build um, a, a world of large liquid censorship resistant prediction markets, um, how I think they'll change a lot of industries uh, and make the world a much better place. Um, reduce corruption, uh, improve uh, overall peace and prosperity uh, for for real humans, um, uh, fix a lot of our institutions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a lot in that blog post, uh, but you'll also find in that blog post tons and tons of links to um, kind of some more background information. If you're curious, definitely look, look there. Um, but I've been thinking about prediction markets for quite some time. Um, and uh, and yeah, maybe if we hadn't gotten so sidetracked in 2013, 2014 on on uh, block size, kind of the block size war and, and many of the uh, the questions that then arose in the cryptocurrency space and what a lot of the cryptocurrency space is kind of still chasing after is like, you know, number of transactions per second, you know, never mind that there are not nearly that many people using most of these cryptocurrency networks, right? So uh, yeah getting getting sidetracked i think also um set back prediction markets a lot so in in 2019 or so i um when i when i left bitpay i was very focused on all right how do we get to a how do we get to a world um you know 10 20 years from now where prediction markets are, are fixing a lot of these institutions that that um that, that they can they can improve uh, they can make um uh, make for better for for wider peace and prosperity. And I started focusing on how to build prediction markets on some cryptocurrency, what it what it looks like to 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 do that. Um, and I definitely resolved that Bitcoin Cash is uh, I think the one of the one of the best places for for prediction markets to be built. Um, like I was saying earlier, it's it'll be important for us to have alternatives uh, in and for there to be prediction markets that aren't built on Bitcoin Cash, simply to protect the ones that are. Um, but I do think that Bitcoin Cash has a good chance of being the of being the biggest uh, for for a number of reasons, also outlined in that blog post. Um, uh, censorship resistance, privacy, and uh, some some aspects, some technical aspects. Uh, scaling and, and uh, deflationary uh, base currency, a few other things. Um, but I started focusing on prediction markets there and I, I was working on um, in BitOff ID, I was kind of working on what does it look like to build a contract system that is the the sidechain bridge for a prediction market that's you know written in another programming language that's that's dedicated uh, a a decentralized um, protocol dedicated exclusively to being a prediction market. Um, I think actually a lot of prediction market projects have kind of gone astray 
by focusing on how to build themselves on existing cryptocurrency networks. And I think that in general, that that tends to be a um, uh, a pretty big misallocation of resources. Many of the uh, many of the projects that tried to that tried to go that way ended up spending five years on on um, scalability concerns because it, it, there's there's kind of a fundamental trade off of can, uh, can you allow for arbitrary computation and to be very scalable? And the question, the answer might be no, um, but that shouldn't be a problem uh, for a prediction market because all you need is a system that's very good at being a prediction market. So if you can build a decentralized prediction market system and you can just write it in Rust or whatever, instead of trying to write it in a blockchain virtual machine opcode system, um, first off, your development's going to go a lot faster. Your end product's going to be a lot, uh, a lot better and a lot more scalable. Um, and you can still... If you build it uh, with you know, a proper side, you know, trustless sidechain bridge of some sort, um, you can get the same security you would get building your system on chain. You know, if your oracles for your for your prediction arc, if if the people who decide whether or not a prediction was correct or not, if they um, are kind of putting their votes in to the to the base layer of you know, the chain, if they're like submitting their votes to a Bitcoin Cash covenant. Um, like fundamentally, you're still the, the trust associations there are still you're still putting a lot of your trust in this kind of decentralized network of those oracles. Um, you might as well have those oracles running a different set of code and just pegging Bitcoin cash into and out of uh, in, into and out of that system. So you might as well have Bitcoin cash that you transfer into that, you know, a side chain that's running code specifically doing that, that's really scalable and has its own even gossip network where the transactions are happening in a totally separate network that doesn't necessarily interact with the rest of the Bitcoin cash network. But those transactions also include like purchases of buying and selling each of these different uh, um, prediction market possibilities, these you know, kind of multi multi market boxes, uh, I bet on this market or, or this box on this triangle, whatever. In general, I think that um, a lot of decentralized applications are probably better built as side chains for this reason. Um, and that e even if you could build them on the base chain for Bitcoin Cash, you get no security advantage in doing so because you're ultimately still relying on this sort of quorum of some, you know, vastly decentralized, but still uh, specifiable set of uh, uh, token holders. Um, and you might as well have them be a set of token holders that might exist on the Bitcoin Cash chain, but they process withdrawals and they they process deposits and withdrawals to and from their sidechain. But then their sidechain happens in code that doesn't have to be written to to run on every Bitcoin Cash node in the world. Um, like a, that the 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 special specialization of concerns there it simply doesn't make sense to do that. Um, so, anyways, uh, working on what that covenant what those contracts might look like um, to send Bitcoin cash to a sidechain and then pull it back out of the sidechain. Um, I had been working on uh, how to do that, um, what, what a system like that might look like. Um, and I find my I found myself uh, reusing the same kind of segment of code <laughs> in a bunch of places. Um, and it was the segment of code that I started trying to use. And I was like, oh, man, this would this would work if we just had this one little change to um, Bitcoin Cash's transaction format. And it's it's kind of like um, uh, like a silly change. It's like it's not something that like Satoshi deliberately designed um, uh, clearly because there's there are actually some other um, issues with it later that were found that were actually actually bugs. Uh, 
Um, so it's a, we know that this particular question, you know, he or, he or they likely didn't, um, likely didn't spend much time on. He was working on other parts of the system. Uh, but that if you instead included the hash of a certain thing in a certain spot of the transaction, instead of that thing itself, it would be possible to build all these systems. Um, and so I built, I was, I was uh, thinking about how these contracts might work. And I had these big, you know, blocks of code that were using PMV3 was the, was a proposal uh, that I named Prediction Market Version 3 Transaction Format. So it's just a, a simple um, acronym that made it easy to talk about a, 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 a version 3 transaction format proposal. Um, so my big block of code required that proposal, um, required that little thing to be hashed in a different way in order for transactions to not um, get larger and larger every time you made a you made a new transaction. And uh, anyways, um, I, you know, staring at my uh, my contracts uh, long enough and, th and thinking about it, um, I eventually wondered if there was some way I could factor that out, <laughs> factor out all that code, because I started to realize that um, by and large, I was only using PMV3 in my contracts for for basically the, uh, a specific use case to be able to pass uh, a little bit of data to pass some state from one contract to some contract in the future to have some contract in the future be able to look at some data and be like, okay, this contract in the past for sure told me this message. Um, and uh, after messing with it, factoring it out, um, there's also another uh, another case where uh, in addition to passing those messages, um, you, you pass a, a bit of data to a, a message in the future, um, to, to a contract in the future. Um, in cash tokens, we call those commitments, we call the, the message you pass, we call it a commitment. Um, and if you pass uh, any piece of data, we call that a non fungible token. I also had another segment of code that in a slightly different way, um, it was a, a specialization of those commitments passing code um, that allowed you to pass numbers uh, in those commitments. And if you passed a number, um, it allowed somebody downstream to actually split that number into two different commitments or merge it back together. Um, and, uh, and it made, it made the code quite a bit more complicated, but it was really important for, um, for being able to conduct votes on the, on the result of something for you. And, and so ultimately it, it was the use case of a fungible token, uh, of tokens that you can have certain, you know, a certain number of tokens here and, and you can split them into a, a two sets of tokens, or you can put them back together in an, in a single output with all of the tokens in one output. And, and eventually, uh, when I was experimenting with um, turning that into a proper um, primitive in the virtual machine for Bitcoin Cash, um, I, you know, eventually kind of squinted at it. And uh, I, people had been for a long time talking about how do we add tokens to tokens to Bitcoin, tokens to Bitcoin Cash. And I kind of squinted at it. I was like, oh, those are tokens, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> so uh, so the kind of the basic primitive is actually non-fungible token. And a fungible token is actually just a... a very specific specialization of a non-fungible token. Uh, a fungible token is a is a non-fungible token that's that you can break up into a a, a, bi a billion pieces or whatever, and then merge back together and be able to prove that that particular non-fungible token was split at that time into into all those pieces and merge back together. Um, so when you think about it, um, for starting from the virtual machine, starting from like how you use it in contracts. Um, you get a, a number of answers to how you should design a token system for Bitcoin um, that are 
really straightforward. They, they like the, the answers are really clear. They're really based on exactly how Satoshi already designed the virtual machine. Like the number of levers that you can, that you can pull, uh, like the, the number of design decisions to be made, um, it are, it is actually, um, pretty small. There are, there are only a few design decisions that really, uh, you need to think about and come to a come to a decision on and and usually they're not they're not aesthetic decisions they're like they have clear answers um and so the cash tokens chip was like me logicking out all of that <laughs> and figure out okay so like if we we're just going to build this if you know if, if satoshi had kept working on his virtual machine um designed for for a, a number of years further and and had gotten to a point where he was thinking about uh message passenger be between contracts um what does that look like um and how do we make that system uh fit perfectly with the existing virtual machine uh and there are a number of answers um uh, a number of like design decisions that previous token standards had kind of cu just kind of pulled out of the air um is like it just kind of made up an answer that that it looked like an aesthetic decision that um, was not an aesthetic decision and actually would have been like a terrible choice um, if, they, if they have done it. Um, because like, for example, a, a good example being the maximum number of fungible tokens. If you if you allow for more fungible tokens than the maximum VM number inside the virtual machine, you get like a whole class of overflow vulnerabilities that is actually a major issue in, in Ethereum contracts, for example. Um, and and you, have to, you have to be careful to design around to make Make sure that it doesn't it, it doesn't happen in your particular contract and i, I shouldn't uh, even refer to specific networks because there, there's a, a different set of concerns around around numbers in ethereum uh, it's a, um ethereum does have a maximum but in general specific contracts have their own ranges and limits and such so um in, in the case of bitcoin cash in the case of cash tokens our answers tend to be quite simple because um, there is one range that is uh, already available in the virtual machine, and that is the number also that we chose for the, for the range for for fungible tokens. So yeah, if you if you read through the cash tokens chip, there's actually a giant rationale section where I just talk about every basically every decision that that there was to be made at any point where there was a decision to be made. I talk about the options and why there's like. A logical answer um and uh a number of other uh, uh of other bitcoin cash developers um helped a lot uh the bitcoin verita team and the bchn guys and, and a number of others like um check the the acknowledgement sections where people were asking good questions and we we you know went back and forth and, and in most cases um yeah after uh, after a bit of arguing there's an obvious answer uh for, for almost all of them um so you can you can find all the rationale in the chip there and uh yeah, and, and also there's uh, you know while we're at it, there's also an example section in the chip describing some of the kind of smart contract constructions that are made possible by cash tokens. Um, and so there's there's the stuff like what I was working on, which is sidechain bridges, trustless sidechain bridges. When you're building a decentralized application that you're you're not building on the network itself because it doesn't make sense to build it on the network itself. It make, makes sense to build it separately. You get the same security. Um, but you get better scalability properties. And quite frankly, it's much easier to develop. You, why, why waste your time building in a virtual machine language for a, for a, uh, a network when you can just literally write it in Rust or write it in C++ or whatever? Yeah, um, check out that example section. Uh, there's a number of kind of, once you have this kind of basic message passing primitive, like 
the 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 alter the the options just um snowball there's like from there uh you can do this next thing and from there you can do this next thing and then all the way down um i describe a number of other kind of mechanism design uh options that become available to contracts uh and then the the final example um is uh is sort of a, a large technical demonstration i built um to demonstrate as many concepts as possible and and to kind of experiment with what a aggregated decentralized exchange looks like on Bitcoin Cash, uh, where um, people can submit orders at, you know, hundreds of transactions per second, um, where the orders have uh, some assuredness as to what prices they'll get. Um, so you can do a, a limit order or a market order and um, and it's a use it has a liquidity provider that's a, an automated market maker. Um, function. Uh, and um, <clears throat> there are a number of pieces that are just kind of like, uh, not even fully implemented in the contract, but uh, but just described. But that that system, uh, I called it JetX joint, ex uh, joint execution decentralized exchange, uh, because it, the way that the ex the or way to order execution works is it's, it's ex executed by both the kind of the maker and the taker at the same time, um, in a in a in a in a an unusual way um, that I, I didn't find in the literature. So I just picked the name. Um, but uh, the uh, um, contract, I think it has like eight different contracts, like 12 different types of tokens or so it's actually been like a year since I looked at it. So uh, uh, a number of different types of um, tokens that are passed between the different um, UTXOs in the contract. Um, it has this concept of, of multi-threaded uh, covenants where um, users can actually submit orders to a, a wide a range of UTXOs and you can submit your order to any of them. And as long as no two users try to submit their order at the exact same moment to the same, to the same UTXO, then both users will get their order in just fine. They won't conflict. Um, if two users try to submit them at the same time, the solution is to, um, is to have two UTXOs so that they can submit it. So that if you have, you know, 10, an average of 10 transactions per second in this market, you want to have 20 UTXOs so that the average person can, can submit to a random UTXO. And um, first off, the market is designed so that the person who gets their order in first doesn't have an advantage over the person who gets their order in second. So there's no reason to, to you know, screw with the order of other people's orders. Um, you, you know, there's no advantage to you to try to trying to um, uh, slip your transaction in between somebody else's order and the thread they were submitting it to. Um, and then uh, just if you build the system that way, um, naturally as it grows and people just choose to submit their or that people's wallets just submit their their order to a random utxo because that's the best chance they have of getting their order in with you know it going smoothly and if the network on average broadcasts um transactions around the network in, in two seconds or something like that then um then you won't ever really have you won't you will very rarely have conflicts where two people's wallets try to submit at the exact same time and different parts of the network here hear the transactions in a different order and um, you have to kind of wait till the next block to hear which one won. But it's also, and check out the uh, GitHub repo. There's also much more discussion about what happens when that happens. And, and actually if, 
if there is a conflict, each or each user can actually just submit their order to another UTXO also. And whatever happens, like your order will get into one of them, like one, one view of the network, one view of the mempool is going, is going to be processed by some random miner in the future. And if the miners have no advantage based on uh, the order of submission and the users have no advantage, advantage based on the order of submission, um, now it just comes down to like a, you know, a, a, yeah, it's just sort of a, a friendly fire issue. There's not like an, an adversarial situation where they're trying to make this happen. Instead, it's just something that accidentally happened and everybody can just have like kind of, uh, everybody, the people involved can, can just kind of submit their, submit their order to both versions of the mempool in a sense. And no matter which miner mines it next, uh, their, their order still got into one of those mempools, right? Uh, to one of those miners mempools, one of those miners view of the mempool. And so your order still still went through, and then uh, the the processing happens uh, twelve blocks later, um, about two hours later, when everybody's orders kind of get merged all at the same time and then executed in uh, in the same moment at the same price, sort of. So yeah, it's uh, it's an example of uh, what I would call like a, an auction or aggregated exchange. Um, I think there'll be kind of two major kinds of exchanges. I think there'll be those sort of aggregated exchanges, which will provide massive liquidity, um, but they have to be pretty big. They have to have markets that you know want to be pretty liquid. Um, they have to be markets for assets that are. Uh, important enough that lots of people and lots of market makers want to have liquidity on that market. And so um, markets where in traditional exchanges, there is kind of a daily auction. Um, those are good examples where JetX might be applicable. Um, and then there's another uh, field of decentralized exchanges, which I think will use um, uh, the zero conf escrow strategy of uh, of being able to have very quickly executing orders um, uh, that happen effectively immediately. Um, and they use kind of mechanism design to uh, ensure that abusing the exchange is always costly to the attacker. Um, and the, the miners make money if they try to abuse it and the miner backstabs them or, or if uh, the user that they're trying to defraud, uh, if they, see it happening they can they can make more money by getting a miner to help them do something else so uh yeah there's there's kind of two general uh, approaches to exchange in general there's there's quick exchanges where where timing matters and we can use some some clever minor extractable value strategies to um to make those work faster um and then there are these big aggregate exchanges that are just like everybody puts their money in puts their token in and and you try to come up with a price that is a fair price every every x number of hours and it might be like a daily auction could be like a weekly or monthly option or something like that uh and it, that'll depend on the market but jetx is an example of one of those aggregated exchanges and and in the GitHub repo, you can find a, a big bulleted list of all of the the technical things it demonstrates, uh, like the various contract constructions and how tokens work and such. Yeah, so we're just uh, we're going to be coming towards the end of the episode here in a second, but I've got to ask you one more on one more question on this uh, JX before we go to our, you know final uh, question of the episode. So uh, obviously, like you said, you've already all the code is already there and everything like that. And this is a super cool application. Obviously, a decentralized exchange is critical for DeFi and also getting a bit of speculative market and hype going in a fresh token ecosystem. So is this what's the sort of timeline for after May 15th upgrade goes live? How soon can we have JetX live on chain? 
That's uh, yeah. Um, thank you for the question. The um, prerequisites for really complicated decentralized exchanges like that are um, a, like a live off engine. Basically, you you need uh, a, a sort of engine system for um, wallets to be able to take the uh, protocol spec and be able to use the exchange. So like if if we just tried to build only JEDX, um, only one implementation of one instance of JEDX for a particular asset, um, you know, it could it could take each wallet that tried to implement it, you know, many months before they could get get it get it working. Um, and each one of them might have their own weird implementation bugs and issues and stuff like that. Um, a much stronger strategy is for us to get a a wider um, kind of foundational, you know, foundational libraries that let us take kind of protocol specifications and just use them as is so that the wallet developer just has to deal with how do we show the UI of showing the limit order book? How do we, how, where do we put the button if you place a limit order? Where do we put the button if you place a market order? What, where do we show the orders, the user's current orders, things like that? So I would say, you know, it may be um, it may be uh, a, a year or more before um, before we have kind of the foundational portions of wallets to make complicated multi-covenant exchanges like that possible. In the immediate term, um, I expect actually that uh, we're much more likely to have um, the rapid form of exchange rather than these big aggregate exchanges. The aggregate exchanges are important when you have pretty large markets and you have market makers that want to move 50 million in assets in one in one transaction. They want to put a limit order in and they want to get they want to get liquidity from people all over the world over the course of the next 24 hours at this certain price or something. In the immediate term, when you're just dealing with a much smaller market that's just kind of fledgling market that's just starting, um, a, a a token exchange is very simple to implement right now. Um, it's a it's coin join transaction. Like you can two people can I can put my tokens in, you can put your Bitcoin cash in, and and we can swap. And I end up with the tokens, you end up with a Bitcoin cash, and we can both like choose how the transaction looks in advance. And if we're both happy with it, we both sign. And and that market can take place like in Telegram or or, a, or an instant messenger or a, or email or whatever. It's very simple to do uh, atomic swaps between tokens and Bitcoin Cash, or tokens and other tokens. Um, and you can even do atomic swaps where there are you know eight thing, eight different uh, tokens being settled. Uh, where you know I I want this, you want this, I want this. Yeah, you know, some other some other person wants Bitcoin Cash, and we all just kind of swap all in one big transaction, and we're all happy with the prices we get, and we all sign the transaction, and then it's done. And those kinds of things are are possible now. Uh, they they require um, development, so that's uh, some uh, it, it would be uh, a valuable thing for you know entrepreneurs out there. If if you're not already working on something like this and you're looking for something interesting to build, uh, that's certainly a market that is immediately useful and and can be used. It can be censorship resistant. Um, it can be an open source thing, or it can be um, a centralized centralized exchanges can build markets like this where. Um, a, a way to make a centralized exchange better in a lot of ways is to, you know, not only have provable reserves, but to have provable execution. Like instead of instead of having your execution be a black box where we we have to trust that you're not trading against the users, you can offer kind of public, visible, provably non-manipulated execution where users of the exchange 
exchange um, simply sign for the for the exchange itself. And I think there's a big space for for a kind of a hybrid centralized exchange, decentralized execution, uh, centralized exchange, decentralized validated execution. I would say where the exchange can can do the order matching. But um, users don't have to trust that the exchange is, you know, not running a fractional reserve because the actual assets are in the transaction that they sign in order for the exchange to take place. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of innovation to be had just in like simple transaction signing atomic swapping exchanges. Um, and then in the in the longer term, as as the ecosystem grows, and there is that demand for many multi million dollar transactions with with you know vast liquidity globally, um, I'm I'm certain that we'll be able to get uh, decentralized exchanges um, that do that in the next few years as as the market for that grows. So exciting. Yeah. So exciting. I mean, obviously we're just, it feels like we're just, we're just peeking through the curtain, you know, we're just at the very beginning of the absolute rocket ship explosion in innovation and, and stuff. I'm sure once the hype uh, really gets going, it's going to be unreal. I've obviously been promoting on the show cash tokens. It's going to be okay. Nobody expect that we're going to go to the moon with the price on the first day, but it kind of unlocks unlocks a ton so we've got our question that we ask every single uh guest uh right at the end of the show message to the community open platform to speak to the bitcoin cash community in just a couple minutes what does the bitcoin cash community need to hear in your view well we we covered some good stuff earlier um i would say uh the um you know we're, we're building um kind of the foundational layer um where It'll actually be quite unique in the cryptocurrency ecosystem where um, we might have, hopefully we'll be able to have multiple wallets, multiple different wallets produced by different vendors that are able to um, to be party to transactions with these decentralized applications and decentralized exchanges. Um, and, and we have like kind of the basic foundation required to do a much better level of security um in in how we interact with these decentralized exchanges um so we're going to have a lot of the foundational um the foundational tech to to make for a um you know a strong globally liquid censorship resistant commercial market um and what i would say is uh uh you know a request for entrepreneurs request for products um I think the next big step for for Bitcoin Cash, um, for the this community in general, and for making um, cryptocurrency use useful in the real world, is um, to to build um, build real businesses uh, with with um, with real commercial value, um, uh, build real economies on on cash tokens uh, where you associate cash tokens with some sort of real world asset so um that is you know stable coins commodities bonds um gift cards loyalty points um concert tickets you know ferry tickets bus tickets um it, it doesn't have to be just you know financialized assets um but but real world assets where where you know you're building a company that that uses bitcoin cash as your as your transactional ledger for something where a user needs to have some digital representation of value that you want to give them the flexibility to move that representation between interfaces. Like it's really nice to be able to, to buy a concert ticket in one app and transfer it to another app and send it to another user or whatever. Um, 
really nice to be able to do the same with, with bus, bus tickets or, or, or store credit or gift cards or loyalty points. Um, and of course, all of those industries have different ways uh, where some industry players uh, prefer to have a lot locked in value where, you know, they don't want you to, to be able to resell your loyalty points or resell your gift cards. or But um, also, users want those things in a lot of markets. So there are places for new entrants into these spaces to build um, to build uh, open alternatives to what is currently closed networks for for the gift cards, tickets, financialized assets, things like that, um, where you as an entrepreneur can provide a, a product that users want. Users want more flexibility in where they hold their gift cards. They want to be able to put it all in an app that they prefer. They don't want to have to use every single retailer's uh, apps for all of their gift cards or whatever. They don't want to have to use a new a new app for every concert they go to. They don't want to. Yeah, they don't want to have to do a new app for every time they park or whatever. And there, there are just like so many places where a digital representation of value that is transmissible between ecosystems would be really, really valuable. Uh, um, and users would love that. And existing players don't want that because they're in kind of a monopoly position in those markets. And so a, as an entrepreneur, that is an opportunity. Users want something that they're not being provided. Um, and 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 you can provide that. And from a from a pr the perspective of the Bitcoin Cash community, when real world assets get issued on Bitcoin Cash, um, that is the most, you know, censorship resistant liquid way to connect the real world with the Bitcoin Cash um, ecosystem. And, um, and if I can kind of paint a picture of where we might be in five to 10 years. Um, no, 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 we're running out of, we're running yeah, out of time. You know, well, yeah, so <laughs> the fact that these real world assets um, can be issued on Bitcoin Cash uh, means that it, it's very possible that five to 10 years from now, the largest, most liquid censorship resistant markets for Bitcoin Cash, the asset, um, would not be, you know, centralized exchanges. Instead, it would be uh, trading happening on Bitcoin Cash. So, the, you know, the largest, most liquid market for Bitcoin Cash could actually run on Bitcoin Cash, which would be right. which would be very important for for separating um, separating Bitcoin Cash from, uh, you know, inability to be and you know fractional reserved and and bucket shopped and manipulated in general. I think uh, I think the Bitcoin Cash community can get excited about real world assets issued on Bitcoin Cash. Uh, many of the um, you know fractional reserve uh, manipulation issues uh, that that tend to be concerning in this community and and in other cryptocurrency communities that are that are relatively small that get that get whipped around by by this kind of activity by 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 you know fraud and, and some of the things that have happened in the past few years. Um, Real world assets issued on Bitcoin Cash are a solution to that problem. Absolutely. All right. Okay. We got to uh, wrap it up there, but I'm really hoping that we can do a part two. We had uh, literally twice as many slides. The listeners are not going to believe me that that was the basic half of the the slides that we covered. The mind blowing half that that'll have to be in the in the part two. So hopefully we can uh, we can arrange that. But. Thank you very much to all our supporters. We've got uh, Ricky and HP, our patrons. We've got our sponsors, uh, General Protocols. Check out bchbull.com. Stabilize your BCH, all that. Uh, not your keys, not your coins. Do your own research, yada, yada. And our Flipstarter supporters, Majumalu Marcelo. Thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, recently getting the YouTube channel uh, censored. I need to follow up with him about that because that sucks. But uh, of course, we're always under attack in BCH. 
uh, Renegade, cheapy, cheap landing, emergent reasons, unspent.app, molecular, Bitcoin cash artist, mini Satoshi, and Callisti cash so thank you everybody for watching check out the website bitcoincashpodcast.com start guide faqs links and all of that shout outs jason who do you have a shout out for and where can people find you for more of this well thank you all very much for the for for running bch podcast has been uh, a fantastic resource and uh, keep at it this is awesome uh and then uh you can find me at bitjason.com b-i-t-j-s-o-n.com um and twitter and reddit and stuff but uh yeah you can find all of all of my other places uh via that website my shout out would be for bit for uh bitcoin cash podcast specifically but uh yeah and uh thank you all to to the um yeah there's a, yeah I, there's a, a ton of people making a, a lot of um a lot of progress happen in the space and uh i i would i would most certainly miss some if i try to uh if i try to list them all but uh thank you all for uh well we'll have to get you back to, to freedom <laughs> money and, 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 and dig digital cash decentralized sound money absolutely it's a it's a team effort we're all, we're all on the same same team here right. as a community and my shout out is to you for absolutely everything you've done in the ecosystem it's titanic and beyond unbelievable uh really i think it sort of demonstrates hopefully to people the power of exponentials you know that's uh truly what it uh unlocks i i would say so thank you for everything you've done and yeah i really hope we can do this again soon for a part two because there's so so much more on those slides uh we didn't get a chance to get to but that's the nature of a two-hour show all right thank you everybody for listening until Thanks. next time thank you Bankers captures all.